Hello everybody. This is our 13th sermon looking at the book of Acts. Today we are in Acts 19 verses 8 to 41 and we're looking at the relationship between power and integrity. I want to begin with a quote from the Victorian Lord Acton. It's old but it's still very relevant. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Instinctively we all know that this is true and many people today are prepared to examine the lives of the powerful to see just how much integrity they have. Think of some of these recent stories in our news. Donald Trump, the billionaire, in both 2016 and 2017, only paid the equivalent of £580 in tax. In 11 of the last 18 years, he paid no tax at all. Does the most powerful man on the planet have integrity? American voters are about to decide. Margaret Ferrier, the SNP MP who travelled to London with COVID symptoms and then got on a train after receiving a positive test. And now it turns out she also went to church and read a Bible reading to the congregation. Does this member of the parliament that has power to put such tight restrictions on us have integrity? Even her colleagues are asking her to resign. Also this week, a damning report was issued that accused the Church of England of allowing child sex abusers from its clergy to hide in order to protect its own reputation. This report really does make shocking reading. One survivor speaking on behalf of many others said, We still feel a tremendous sense of anger and lack of trust towards the church. The church is supposed to help teach people right and wrong. It's supposed to stand for truth and justice. But again, people are now questioning our integrity. And every time they do, damage is done to our gospel work. These are just three recent stories where the integrity of those in power has been called into question. There are many more. I've not even mentioned Dominic Cummins. But we've said enough to get the point. Power comes with responsibility. It can be used for great good, or it can be used to feather one's nest and harm other people. So people with power rightly get analysed as to the integrity of their actions. When we think of this, what we must not do is separate ourselves from it, assuming that only politicians have power. We all have power in various ways. Power in our household and our family. Power in our workplace. Power in our social club. We must use that power well. If we do, we can help other people. If we do not, we can hurt others and do great damage to our witness as Christians. Integrity is vital. So why do I begin in this way? Well, our passage today is all about power. The power of God's kingdom breaking into the world, overcoming the powers of sin and evil as it does so. And within it all, we see Paul, 
ministering in God's power as the Holy Spirit works through him to bring the gospel to the city of Ephesus. At the end of Paul's stay in the city, we read an important statement summarising his work. Verse 20 says this, In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. What we're going to discover is that Paul's ministry was successful because there was God's great power coursing through him, but also because he conducted himself with integrity. That meant the focus was not on Paul, but on the Lord Jesus, whom he preached. God's power working through Paul's integrity enabled the gospel to spread widely, even though it came up against considerable opposition. Let's take a closer look. Ephesus was a centre of power, worldly power, that is. As capital of the region, it had political power. The law courts and the proconsuls were there. It also had financial power, with great amounts of money changing hands. Ephesus was also a place of religious power. It had schools of philosophers, synagogues, and most obviously of all, the Artemis cult. Artemis was the Greco-Roman goddess of fertility. Her great temple was in Ephesus because they believed her image fell to the ground there in a meteorite. And that temple was served by many priestess prostitutes. Consequently, her cult had a great hold over the city. Much money was to be made from fearful people having to buy idols of her. So Ephesus was a place of power, but perhaps even above the political and the financial and the religious came another, the power of magic. Ephesus was the ancient centre for the magical arts. Indeed, its reputation was so great for this, the phrase Ephesian writings referred to antique documents containing spells and incantations. The city was full of sorcery and occult oppression. So what we see in this chapter is a great encounter between the power of God and the power of magic. The power of God's goodness versus the evil forces that bound the people into darkness. And as we will see, the power of God always wins the day. First of all, we have God's defeat of lucky charms. Ephesus was full of objects considered to be lucky or imbued with magical power to heal and deliver. Charms, amulets, tokens... Of course, none of them worked, but they had such a hold on the people, just like the grockle shops of today, many were enticed in. But in verses 11 to 12, we see God working in such a way that the Ephesians would be forced to sit up and take notice. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured and their evil spirits left them. In a city steeped in such items, God uses the rags of Paul's tent making to heal people and drive out spirits. 
Verse 11 is very clear. This wasn't Paul's miracle. It was God's. This isn't then a procedure for healing to be taken up for the church today. This is God stepping into the specific situation and blowing the Ephesian worldview apart. Your charms and relics fail, mine work. The onlooking Ephesians, when they saw this, would have readily attributed this power to the God Paul had become known for preaching about. Secondly, we have the power of God defeating supposed spiritual exorcists in verses 13 to 17. In order to understand this little tale, there's a vital piece of information you need to know. And that is that there was never a Jewish chief priest called Sceva. So these seven sons of Sceva mentioned here, although probably culturally Jewish, are frauds. They're claiming to have power and connection to a religious authority that they just don't have. In fact, they're so fraudulent, they will just add any old rune to their magic if they think it might just have an effect. Here, they've added the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to their spells. That's right, supposed Jews proclaiming the power of Jesus' name. It shows what frauds they were. It also shows just what power they were holding over the people. No doubt, having heard about God's power in the handkerchiefs, they have a go at using the name of Jesus themselves, whom Paul preaches. But at this, to their great surprise, a demon actually comes out of someone. The demon confesses to knowing who Jesus is and who Paul is, but he has no idea who these sons of Sceva are, so promptly beats them up. It's a darkly comic and very sorry tale, but the power is undeniable. God has overcome the fraudulent exorcist. They just could not contain what the power of the name of Jesus could do. Thirdly, the power of God defeats sorcery and spells. The previous incident with the sons of Sceva had caused fear to spread in Ephesus. Suddenly now the name of Jesus is being held in high honour. From this then comes perhaps the most striking victory. Many of those in the city who practised the occult, dabbled in sorcery, chanted spells... On hearing of the power in the name of Jesus, openly began confessing their evil deeds. Now, openly confessing here probably means revealing the content of their spells before burning them, because the potency of a spell was thought to be bound up in its secrecy. If the spell was divulged, it became ineffective. So here are the sorcerers confessing that their dark arts were ineffective in light of the power of God. And so start burning all their scrolls. In fact, 50,000 drachmas worth, that's 50,000 days wages worth, goes up in smoke. The sheer amount of the scroll shows just how dark Ephesus was and just what a total victory this was for the power of God. This event was so seismic that straight after it comes the summary statement we began with. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. 
God's power is truly breaking in and transforming lives in Ephesus. People locked into bondage to evil are being set free. And notice that Paul is not trying to grasp this power for himself. He simply testifies to it being the power of Jesus at work. The power evidenced in these great miracles backs up the word that he has been preaching. And so as a result, many come to believe in the gospel. So the gospel has great power. Lives are changed when the truth breaks out. But as ever in these sorts of conflicts, it's when the gospel begins to make an economic impact that people begin to react with hostility. As soon as the Ephesians start to see the power of God at work, they stop buying the magic charms and shrines dedicated to Artemis. So suddenly the silversmiths are up in arms because they're losing money. Led by Demetrius, they're not concerned about religious truth. All they're concerned about is their income. So they stir up a riot. Soon Paul's travelling companions are seized. The theatre which held some 25,000 people is stormed and suddenly they're baying for blood. In fact, the riot is so hostile that when Paul wants to talk to the crowds, the disciples pull him back. For two hours, the people are shouting at the top of their lungs in unison, Great is Artemis! Great is Artemis! Great is Artemis! It's a scene of hostility that all stems from the powers that be in Ephesus taking a beating from the power of God's love. Anyway, eventually the city clerk steps up and gradually he manages to silence the crowd. He tries all sorts of techniques to plead with the rioters mob in order to get them to disperse. He tries to butter up Artemis, saying something like, She sent her image to us, so don't act rashly, it'll be alright, she favours us. He also tries the fear tactic. Think of the Romans, he says. If they hear about this riot, they could be on us like a ton of bricks. But most interestingly, the city clerk also says something else. These are verses 37 to 38. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody... The courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. Do you see, this city clerk knows that Paul and his men are innocent. Despite the huge impact they've had on the city, despite the preaching, the healing, the exorcisms, the scroll burning, all those works of power that we've just looked at, Paul and his companions have acted with integrity. In proclaiming their God, they've not robbed temples or blasphemed Artemis. No, Paul is innocent. And the city clerk, who clearly has got to know Paul at some point, is willing to defend him. If Demetrius and the silversmiths have a problem, they must take it to the courts, because Paul is innocent until proven guilty. And suddenly amongst this great story that may seem a little irrelevant to Isla in 2020 comes a lesson that is very relevant to us. Paul has witnessed to the powerful name of Jesus. His work has radically shaken the magic centre of Ephesus to the core, yet he has done it in such a way that he has carried integrity 
and could be considered innocent by the city clerk. There is simply nothing he could be accused of. Donald Trump, Margaret Ferrier, the Church of England have all had their integrity questioned, but the same could not be done of Paul. Paul knew in God he had access to the greatest power of all, but his job was to testify to it blamelessly. On Isla today, everyone knows us. They know who we claim to be. They know that we attend church and seek to follow God. They watch our actions and they listen to our words. On Isla, the church still has a power. Not as much as it used to have, I grant you, but it's still there. We're still asked to conduct weddings and funerals. We're still invited into schools. We were asked to place a representative on the Isla Recovery Group. There is still a respect for the church here. We need to ensure that we are people of integrity, people who are trusted, people who practice what we preach. Yes, we will all make mistakes, none of us are perfect, and we will all need God's ongoing forgiveness, but our integrity is important. Occasionally, we'll come up against the things of Ephesus, the occasional psychic session that takes place in an island pub. Some here will dabble in crystals and Reiki and the things of the occult. We may at times find ourselves having to pray earnestly for our friends and family that God will break them out of such things. But as I began by saying, we'll all exercise power somewhere. Be it in our homes, our workplace, a community council or the board of a group or a social club. If we want our witness to be effective, we must use our words and actions to help and bless people. To preach the gospel and set people free, not to exploit or condemn or make ourselves seem important. We worship the God of absolute power. We do not have to look any further for it. We do not have to try and grasp it for ourselves. Instead, we try to do what Jesus did. And that was to use all the power at his disposal to help other people. In this passage, the gospel was the one truth that the dark city of Ephesus needed. Paul witnessed to its power with integrity and it won many for Christ. May we do the same on Isla today.